my dear brothers and sisters. By way of painting the background to our chapter that we have today from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, I think we can say that the scribes and Pharisees were concerned about Christ's growing popularity and the apparent threat to their own position that that posed. He was performing many miracles at this time. He was at this time in in Galilee. And even his disciples were beginning to engage in that work as well. We read that in chapter 6 and verse 7 where it says he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So they were now also performing miracles, multiplying the effect of Christ's work and no doubt increasing his popularity. They had already challenged him on a number of occasions when he was in Judea and it appears that he left Judea for Galilee to escape some of that criticism. So now we find them coming deliberately from Jerusalem to further challenge him in Galilee. There's no doubt that ritual defilement did feature under the law of Moses. We're all familiar with the concept of clean and unclean animals, only clean animals being suitable to be used for food, and that ritual defilement could be contracted by touching the dead body of a person or an animal, touching a leper, and so on. But the Pharisees had very much added to what the law said about such matters, apparently um, in order to hedge about the law as they saw it and to give an appearance of a strict application of the law. It's quite clear from um, verse 1, as I've said, where it says that the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together him came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, that they deliberately come from Jerusalem to confront him. They weren't looking to make any positive contribution to Jesus' work. There's also no doubt that some of Christ's disciples were not as scrupulous about matters of personal cleansing as the Pharisees were themselves. Verse 5, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Jesus' response to this question was to launch a blistering attack upon these scribes and Pharisees. Yes, they had an appearance by their detailed application or even interpretation of the law, an appearance of being strictly following that law. But some of their tradition actually nullified the law. And he cites the question of the fifth commandment, which was that a person should honour their father and their father. It's described as the first command with promise elsewhere in the New Testament, that you might live long and, and enjoy Um, a blessing on this earth that was what God said would be the response that he would make to those who honoured their father and their mother but the Pharisees said that if a person stated that 
their possessions were dedicated to, to God and was korban, as it were, um, that would enable them to avoid this responsibility to support their parents. And you have to bear in mind, of course, there was no welfare state in those times. When people got old and they couldn't work anymore, they actually depended on their family to support them. So that was a very serious matter that the Pharisees had brought about by thus overturning this fifth commandment. I suppose we ought to ask the question to ourselves, dear brothers and sisters, at this point, whether we could, whether it would be possible for us to nullify God's commands by our tradition. I think it's perfectly legitimate and reasonable for us to have accepted and orderly ways of doing things. We need a degree of order and recognised procedure in our meetings, don't we? But we must take care not to place those traditions, those ways of doing things, above the need to show compassion and love for one another. After all, as far as Christ is concerned, love for God and love for one another are the fundamentals of Christianity. It's not about keeping the letter of the law. It's easy for us to drop into a routine in our daily and weekly round, doing the readings, could even be in a perfunctory manner if we're not careful, attending the meetings, dressing in a certain way, and imagine that that's all we have to do to be acceptable to God. Whereas what God actually wants, as Christ brings out so clearly in this passage, is heartfelt loving service, which goes much deeper than an outward appearance of righteousness. It was the Pharisees' failure to reform their hearts, as he makes clear here. <clears throat> well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he goes on in verses 21 to 23, effectively to accuse them of not reforming the heart. Out of their hearts were coming these evil thoughts and so on, bad things about Christ, wanted to put him to death, and so on. He knew what was really in their heart, and it was their total failure to reform their hearts, which Christ is really criticising here. It's a very important lesson to us, that fundamentally what God wants from us is to do everything out of love for him and love for our neighbour. He wants us to reform our hearts, our thinking, our motives, by bringing the word of God into our minds, Letting it work, change the way that we think, change the way that we behave, motivate us to have love. So that when we look at our brother and sister, instead of criticising them, we look to see how we can build them up, how we can encourage them, how we can strengthen one another as we journey together to the kingdom. We now find Christ moving on from here. And if you look at the parallel record in Matthew chapter 15, it does seem that once again he deliberately withdraws from this confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees. And he goes to a Gentile area, verse 24, the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was very definitely not part of Israel. In fact, that area was part of the Roman province of Syria, which is why when we find this woman coming to him, pleading with him to heal her daughter. She's described as a Syro-Phoenician. Tyre and Sidon, of course, were in old Phoenicia, but Phoenicia had now become incorporated into the Roman province of Syria. 
So she's described as a Syro-Phoenician and a Greek, which just means that she was a Gentile. It does seem that Jesus really wanted a break at this point. He went into a house, verse 24, and he wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Yes, it was as though he wanted time with his disciples to build them up, to encourage them, to help them to understand the problem that they, they seem to have had with this question of ritual defilement and the Pharisees. They couldn't seem to understand what he was getting at. He had to explain it to them, didn't he, later on. Um, but instead of that, he has this lady come to him requesting that her daughter be healed. <clears throat> The Matthew record tells us that she followed Jesus. She didn't just appear in this house, but she literally followed him along the way. And Matthew tells us what she actually said, which is not recorded by Mark. Matthew says that she followed Jesus, crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. And these words provide a remarkable insight into the faith of this Gentile woman. Bear in mind, she wasn't Jewish, she was a Gentile. She clearly believed that this was her son, or maybe the son of David. I think we can say the inference is she believed that he was the Messiah. And she also believed that as a son of David, that Jesus would be merciful, have mercy on me. And she believed that he was her Lord as well, her Lord, our son of David. We've just been reading, haven't we, recently of the life of David in our readings in, in Samuel and Kings, and we've seen how after David um, defeated the rebellion of Absalom, he was very merciful. He didn't want anyone to be put to death. He forgave um, the Benjamite who came down to meet him at, at the Jordan. He cursed him as he left Jerusalem, and not just once, but all the way down to Jericho, thrown stones at him and his entourage and cursed him all along the way. <clears throat> and David forgave him. And he even appointed Amaza, who was the commander of Absalom's army, as the commander of his army, in, in, a way, in, in a way of trying to bring together the opposing sides in Israel at this time and reunite them under his leadership. So David was merciful, and as a son of David, this, this woman expected Christ would also be merciful. And she wasn't mistaken, was she? The Matthew record tells us that Jesus answered her, not a word, and you can imagine her following him along the way, repeating this request. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. <clears throat> so much so, it seems, that the disciples were quite embarrassed by this situation. And, and the Matthew record tells us that they pleaded with Christ to send her away, for she crieth after us. Were the disciples really encouraging Jesus to send this poor woman away and without her daughter being healed? Did Jesus ever send anyone away without healing them? I can't find a record of it. But Jesus does appear to deliberately put her off. And there's obviously a reason for this. If we turn over to the Matthew record in chapter 15, we've got a slightly fuller record there. I just want to pick up one or two verses there. Starting at verse 26, Matthew 15, verse 26. Um, he puts her off by saying, It is not good to take the children's bread, talking about Israel, of course, 
and throw it to the dogs, or little dogs, as this translation has it. And that's really a, a reflection on the way that the Jews actually viewed the Gentiles at this time. They viewed them as dogs. They called Gentiles dogs. So it was really quite a, you might have thought, an insulting way to describe her, in effect, as amongst the dogs. <clears throat> so Christ is putting her off. It seems that Christ was trying to bring out yet another good quality in this woman. We've already seen that she had strong and persistent faith, that she believed that Jesus was the Lord, that he was merciful. But another quality has to come out, and that is, finally, that the woman was absolutely humble. Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And finally the woman is rewarded for her faith, her persistence her, and her total humility. And Christ responds, verse 28, O woman, great is your faith, let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. I think this incident is something of an acted parable, dear brothers and sisters. We too are Gentiles like the Syrophoenician woman. We need to be spiritually healed. We must understand, if we want to be healed, ultimately, the promises of God, believe in the hope of Israel, believe in Israel's Messiah, believe in his work as our saviour. We must be persistent in prayer and worship and in following our master, just as the woman followed Christ, constantly asking for her daughter to be healed. And then humbly wait the time when Christ will give us healing. <clears throat> and if we do that, we can be sure that our faith will not be go unrewarded. <clears throat> Let's move on now to the final incident in this chapter. Um, we find from the Matthew record that Jesus departs from there, he skirts the Sea of Galilee, that is on the northern, he goes around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis. Now the area of Decapolis Deca means ten, polis means a city, this is Greek, um, was an area noted for ten cities that had been founded by Greek legionnaires from the time of the um, Greek Empire, who'd settled in that area after their military service came to an end with their families and formed a community. So once again, this is very much a Gentile area that Christ has now gone to. Matthew's parallel record reads like this, chapter 15, verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing. 
and they glorified the God of Israel. So you see from this parallel record that Jesus actually made many, um, did many miracles of healing in this Gentile area. It wasn't just this one man which Mark has seen fit to pick out and bring to our special attention in his record. So why does Mark pick out this individual act of healing, of this deaf and mute man? <clears throat> Let's go back to the record in Mark. Verse 32. They brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. It seems as though he'd been healing all the others just by putting his hand on them. Healed many people, but this time Christ adopts a very different procedure. Jesus takes the man aside from the multitude, verse 33. He puts his fingers in his ears, spits and touches his tongue. Then he looks up to heaven and he finally utters one word of command in, by way of healing. Ephata, be opened. So why this procedure? Was it getting harder for Jesus to heal people? I rather doubt it. Well, let's think about this particular individual. The record tells us that he was deaf and he had an impediment in his speech. So it was very difficult to communicate with him and his level of understanding would have been very limited. Jesus always required faith in a recipient of his healing miracles. This man could neither hear nor speak clearly. His understanding would have been very limited. Maybe he wouldn't have had any real faith at all. It seems to me that what Jesus is doing here is using sign language, really, appropriate to a deaf and dumb person, to stimulate his faith. So Jesus took him aside to communicate with him using sign language and perhaps to gauge his reaction, looking for signs of faith in this man. By putting his fingers into his ears, he was indicating, I'm going to make you hear. By spitting and touching his tongue, he was indicating that it's my inspired words that come from my mouth that will enable you to speak clearly. And when he looked up to heaven, he was showing the man, look, I'm praying for you. The power to heal is going to come from God. <clears throat> Presumably the deaf, mute man responded to this active parable, perhaps with a nod, maybe with a smile, some indication of belief on his part, so that Christ then performed the miracle with a word, a flutter, be opened. It's an emphatic word of command. It's an interesting word because it only occurs in this one place in the New Testament but it does actually occur a couple of other places in the Old Testament, that is in the Greek Old Testament. Um, and I'd just like to think for a moment about one or two of those passages. Um, it's not quite the same word, but one passage which I think we can say was being fulfilled um, by these miracles of Christ is found in Isaiah and chapter 35. So Isaiah 35, this is a very well-known passage picture of the future, a word picture of the future, you'll, you'll immediately be familiar with, and you'll see the relevant part as, as I read it. It's Isaiah chapter 35, reading from verse 1. The wilderness and wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. 
It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are faint-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Yes, we can see the beginning of a fulfilment of this prophecy, can't we, in the work of Christ in this chapter 7 of Mark. But that picture of the future, I'm sure it's not just talking about physical healing, although that will be an aspect of the kingdom, of course. But what our world really needs is a healing to its spiritual blindness, its spiritual deafness, its spiritual lameness. We live in a world that's blinded by false religions of, of, of many kinds, even where there's any faith at all. And that veil has to be taken away and replaced with the knowledge of the truth. And it will happen in the kingdom. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And even with a word of command, our Lord shall raise the dead. He will come and save you. Will he say, Ephata, be opened to the graves? That's all he needs to do, isn't it? A word of command to raise the dead. Finally, I'd like to turn to a chapter in Daniel where in the, in the original, which is Aramaic actually in this part of Daniel, and we've got the same word as Ephrata featuring. It's, it's Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is the vision of the four great beasts representing the four great empires. And then we have the little horn coming out of the fourth beast representing the papacy. And if we pick up the chapter at verse 8, Daniel chapter 7 verse 8, I was considering the horn, and there was another horn, a little one, representing the papacy, as I've said, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. It's the same word, Ifata. So when the books are opened, that's the day of judgment. An interpretation is given at the end of this chapter by the angel, verse 26. The court shall be seated, and they shall take away his, the fourth beast's dominion, to consume and destroy it forever. 
Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all his dominions shall serve and obey him. Yes, Christ is going to open the graves. He's going to open the book of judgment and reward those who've lived a life of faith. Now we pray ourselves included. And so finally those words at the end of Isaiah, just returning to that chapter 35, will be fulfilled. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thank <laughs> you.